New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Today, catching up with CB Woodhouse from Voyager. How are you, CB? Great, thank you. Yeah, good good to be back. I believe this is my fourth time on the podcast. Fantastic. I uh, I struggle. I lose count, actually. So um, thank you for keeping count for us. How many tech podcasts is this now? Oh, uh, well beyond 500, but I, I lose count of that as well. It will be there on the published episode. It'll have a number. We used to yep. call it out, but uh, yep. yeah, it's it's getting it's getting too many. I thought it was about seven hundred, but obviously I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah, maybe in a maybe in a few years we'll get we'll get there. I think it, yeah, in um, in another nine or ten years we should hit a thousand. So uh, nice if we we're still uh, going. So yeah, lots going on in the tech world always. Uh, but what I was keen to chat to you about to start with was to hear a little bit about. Voyager and how things have been going for you. Maybe you can give a little bit of a sort of background for those that are new to the show or you know haven't heard from you before in terms of where you fit into the big wide world of, of tech and telecommunications and uh, you know a little bit about your, your background. Sure, yeah. Um, I've, I've been doing New Zealand telecommunications for 25 years now. Um, my my degrade celebrity status uh, in New Zealand is, is mostly due to the fact that I founded Orcon, which is um, you're probably still the fourth largest internet provider in New Zealand, um, and now owned by Vocus. And um, but for the last ten years, I've been running an internet company called Voyager, and we've got a one percent market share. So there's about two million um, homes and business premises in New Zealand, and so Voyager's got about one percent of that, which is about twenty thousand homes and businesses, predominantly on fibre. Um, and consumer internet's only uh, a third of our revenue, though. So we've we got a lot of uh, SME and enterprise customers, and also a third of our revenue comes from wholesale. So we have a Trans Tasman and and um, national network that we wholesale to other providers as well as some software platforms and um, a, a sort of cloud PBX platform which is quite popular with wholesalers and resellers and so we have um, over 10,000 New Zealand SME businesses on our you know cloud PBX platform um, which is probably our best margin product and, and something we've been building for the last eight years. Um, so if listeners have heard of Two Talk, we've we've kind of got something uh, you know similar, um, you know different in, in certain ways. But um, you know we're really loving how the product's um, developing and evolving um, and maturing. Yeah, fantastic. And um, some years ago, part of your sort of acquisitions included domain name registrars. Is that still part of your business today? Yeah. So we have a um, a brand called First Domains. I bought four different. Uh, domain name registrars and there was a whole handful they've largely all been merged into first domains because first domains was was the largest i believe first domains has about a 16 percent market share um, and i think there's about six hundred thousand domain names registered now so first domains has about 120 odd thousand domain names registered um, and we look after um, yeah 100 100 plus thousand domains for 35,000 odd unique uh, customers um, and uh, you know a lot of those are, are businesses. So I think there's about seventeen thousand SMEs, and um, that helps us to um, make those customers aware of the Voyager brand, um, and um, as, a, as a good customer base to sell more than one product to. So yeah, a few years ago when I did that acquisition, our ARPU might have been you know twenty or forty dollars a year, where people are buying you know one or two domain names, and so what we want to do is try and get those businesses spending um, you know some money with us on 
cloud PAVX and, and fibre and um, cloud servers and all of those kind of things as well if they would like to, obviously. <laughs> right, and th- those that aren't familiar with the, uh, the the telecommunications industry lingo, ARPU, Average Revenue Per User? Yes, I'm, correct. Sorry if you are talking lingo. about. <laughs> <laughs> the telecommunications industry is... Uh, rife with uh, three letter acronyms yes. and, and more so yeah. sorry yeah. about that no no so um, yeah I mean that, and that's um, that makes sense doesn't it you, you know you're always wanting to to grow you know your your share of uh, of what a what a customer spends yeah standard business 101 is that it's 10 times easier to sell something to an existing customer than it is to go out and get a new customer so we like to have our customers and, and um, you know find out what their needs are and if we can help them with more services that's great oh good stuff so so looking back over the, the last year, and we've you know we've just had the the anniversary of New Zealand going into our lockdown for COVID uh, over the last couple of weeks or so. How was that for you and and your team? Because where are your um, staff based in New Zealand? Uh, so we have. Four, four plus offices, um, some you know kind of small locations and things, but we have a, a data centre in Albany which came from the HD internet acquisition. Um, that's now got about 15 to 20 staff working on site. We have an Auckland central office, we have a Wellington central office and a Christchurch office and um, the Wellington office came from the acquisition of Actrix about four or five years ago, which was actually New Zealand's first internet service provider founded in 1989 and the fifth commercial internet provider in the world actually, so they were wow. the fifth company to ever sell internet so that's a great great sort of historical legacy which we're you know continuing on and then the Christchurch team came from the acquisitions of Net24 and First Domains and there's about 40 staff down there so Voyage is turning over close to 40 million dollars and 110 115 staff now Um, so it's a it's a reasonable sized organization we've done well in our growth the last few years which is very credit to the team yeah congratulations uh, that, that's great with that sort of spread of people but none of them being able to go into the office I'm keen to see or you know get a feel for how that changed things for you and then now that we're you know we're mostly out of lockdown and you, you never know because that could you know could change at the drop of a hat right you know in fact from the time we re- record this you know we, we could get an announcement while we're recording uh, to say that we're going into lockdown lockdown now I'm not trying to jinx anything or <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, those things are are a realistic possibility you know now that we've been through that and I, I see there's a lot of um, you know maneuvers around this internationally where uh, you know I think you know Google was one of the one of the biggest to really push people to work from home quite quickly and to say look we expect people to be working from home I think they were telling their staff you're going to be working home for you know from home until sort of mid 2021 I think you know that that's sort of communication came through reasonably reasonably quickly um, now I'm starting to see more voices and discussion around the fact that um, there are some you know very much varying opinions on whether it works for a business to be entirely remote long term and and what that looks like so kind of keen to hear hear the voyager story and how that's sort of panning out for you especially as you're already spread out around the country anyway even when staff are in the office right yeah so my my personal lockdown uh story my timing was relatively impeccable i've 
I was living in LA a lot of the time the last four years and running the company remotely so I was kind of a bit of a teleworker and using um, teams or you know those kind of um, platforms um, uh, to limit with limited success and then coming back and having the occasional meeting and that kind of thing um, I got sick of traveling and, and being overseas in December 2019 so moved back to Auckland and then a few months later of course the whole, the whole thing sort of unfolded um, obviously things happen quite rapidly so from the the time when we sort of started thinking oh this COVID thing's going to be a real problem to Jacinda making the correct call uh, okay we're going to lock down I mean she was um, you know one of the first and, and obviously had the whole thing of you know go early go hard so we had I think it was less than a week it seemed like not very much time at all to decide we were going to work from home and being an internet company we wanted to get all hands on deck and make that happen so we um, you know ordered fibre uh, where we could or got rushed installs or had you know NTUs turned up or basically tried to make sure that staff had what they needed um, but then there was a huge project where we actually got vans to drive around um, you know Auckland Wellington Christchurch picking up all of the computers because not all of our staff had laptops um, so now I think a policy is that we pretty much give a laptop to every single staff member because um, remote working and, and you know that kind of thing is a lot more common but we had a lot of you know the finance team never got a laptop it was just you come into work and it's nine to five and you're always here and you have a desktop so those desktops um, had to be pushed out and one of the initial problems that we ran into was people complaining because we sort of decided to give everyone one screen and then you know leave one screen at work so that we were kind of hedging our bets about how long it was going to be and then everyone basically said oh no we've got to have the two monitors set up because a lot of the you know call centre staff like to have call queues on one screen and email on another and maybe a web browser or another and that kind of thing so um, then we you know sort of said okay everyone's got to do that and then some of the staff needed um, you know they didn't hadn't taken their chairs so then we let all our staff take all their you know high quality chairs because they were hurting their back being on their kitchen chair and then not all of them had space um, where to go but um, it's interesting because as things have matured we've really noticed um, very um, kind of you know different regional differences so a lot of our staff um, in Auckland are actually live on the shore and so they're really loving us having a North Shore office which is only we've only had for a year and so a lot of them are turning up on the North Shore but um, our Auckland office is often deserted and, and a lot of the staff say hey we really want to work from home four days a week if not permanently um, because just the Auckland traffic annoys us and we really value it. Um, the Christchurch team a lot of them only have to travel 10 minutes to work the traffic isn't as much of a problem they have a real vibe down there so the Christchurch office actually have essentially whenever there's not a lockdown they've retained their office culture and, and all are basically volunteering to go into the office so um, you know if I said to all the Auckland staff you need to come into the office there'd kind of be a mutiny and we've had you know a few staff say well if you want me to but you know, have my bum on my desk. I, I love this whole home working work life balance thing. I'll, I'll just go and work for, you know, a competitor. So it's it's just become a norm now. So to a certain extent, we've uh, refocused on or refocused away from, you know, how many hours are you working to what are your deliverables. And and I think that's been a good thing in terms of just setting KPIs for staff and saying, look, we don't care if you pick up your kids from school. We don't care if you're working, you know, late at night. Um, I mean, the call centre staff are a little bit different because we have to have 
bums on seats for a certain number of hours. But I think I think on the whole, it's a um, a good thing. And I actually really enjoyed for the first lockdown. Um, I like being good at things, but I've always been a bit of a terrible cook. And I ended up um, getting isolated on my farm out in Manukau. So it was just me and a bunch of horses and some cows for three months. And so I joined masterclass.com and I you know did the Gordon Ramsay cooking class and you know um, watched the whole Martin Scorsese how to make a film just out of interest and things. And yep. just um, I think I read about 30 books um, in that first lockdown and a whole bunch more in the next lockdown. So I think it was a, there was definitely some some pros, but obviously um, you know I had a nice house in the countryside. So you know maybe if there was four people in an apartment or something and they were all cooped up. It might have been a completely different, you know, unpleasant experience. But for me, it was enjoyable, and I think the the whole world has now moved to, you know, um, yeah, laptops and work from anywhere, and it's, it's been a real change. So it's just the new new way that if people do things. Yeah, look, there's some really interesting aspects to it, and you know, I've been speaking to you know a bunch of people internationally over the over the past uh, couple of months. Uh, through the social audio platform uh, Clubhouse and also through Twitter Spaces, and um, you know the platform sort of gives you this sort of leveler in, in terms of you know it, it's location agnostic, so you know you're connecting and, and chatting to people all over the world, um, and a lot of cases Kiwis, and and the sort of you know the example you talked about people sort of you know cooped up in apartments. Um, there's an aspect of that, and then you drop the kids into the mix, and uh, yeah, there's um, that. That sounds uh, pr- pretty pretty hellish in a lot of cases. With uh, yeah, people um, you know not not able to drop kids off at school and any of that. It's just you know they've been uh, locked in a ho- in a house or a small apartment with um, you know with their, their children for uh, for twelve months without a break. Yeah. Um, so there's there are some varying aspects to that. I I suppose. Yeah, I don't have kids myself, and I'm looking forward to having some um, but I'd just spent Easter with a bunch of friends that all did have kids and kind of by the end of Easter I was okay I I can't cope with any more things being broken and kicked over and spills and you know my OCD was going crazy by by Sunday night yeah it's interesting Um, and then I mean for me for I guess a a good period of time I've been thinking man if any investments that are related to uh, commercial property and cities that stuff's just not going to, you know, it's not going to be in a good place in a few years' time. But I've started hearing a lot of voices that are, and even just looking at the Auckland traffic coming into into the office, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a lot to sort of suggest, well, actually a lot of businesses are going to move, you know, talking sort of internationally, they're going to move as much back to offices as they, as they can. It will be different to what it was before, but not as many businesses are maybe in a position to be quite as flexible as as Voyager is. So I guess you you probably towards one end of a, of a spectrum possibly. Um, and I guess this is what we'll get to see. You know, are you at one end or well, or will you just be the average and the, and the norm and this is something... It's interesting actually because another one of my hats is that I, I made a bunch of money from the Orcon money and then I invested. So I had seven commercial properties that were all kind of office buildings and Voyager was in one and then I had, you know, 40 odd commercial tenancies. So, um, you know, as the year progressed through COVID, I, I made the decision to sell down three of those large properties. Um, and I just kind of thought, well, um, seeing how 
all of my staff love working from home and how it's become the new norm um, the thing that I sort of thought as well a lot of even if even if landlords are giving rent relief a lot of companies are in two three year leases and so they're stuck with those leases even though there's a new way of working and they can't exit them so I don't think that we've seen the avalanche of companies saying well we don't quite need as much space um, and certainly for Voyager in our Auckland office I mean we're, we're going to go from 600 square metres to 200 um, for sure and you know, there's a there's a potential of us just focusing on kind of team building exercises and, and work from home. But I do agree that there is also something that's kind of been lost. So when I go down to our Christchurch office, because everyone has just decided, oh, we just like working from the office and our team culture, for whatever reason, that's the same company, it's a similar vibe, but the Christchurch guys all love working together and it's easy and there's not a traffic problem. Um, it is really nice because you can just walk over to someone and solve problems and that kind of thing. And, you know, and our Auckland office I'm thinking well you know are we losing something here so the verdict's still a little bit out but you know most of our staff say we love the home life balance but I think the the issue is is that Voyager has a has a culture and when you've been in that culture and then you work from home it's fine but what do you do when someone is brand new they get hired and then they're just sitting at home with kind of no interaction and they don't pick up that you know the, the flavour of a company. Yeah, I think so there I think can that's be a probably big difference. The problem. Yeah, big difference there. But I'm doing a lot of thinking about it and I don't know that I have all the answers. <laughs> so we're continually experimenting here. But it's very interesting to see how our different offices have just chosen their own path and the Auckland offices, well, we don't want to deal with traffic. We like working from home, so that's what all my staff are doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've noticed a, a mix across, um, you know, the, the clients of, of my business and... Yeah, in one case there was a you know, there was a complete shutdown, got rid of premises, completely exited. We're just going to work from home now, and then I don't know how long that lasted. And then they decided no, that's not working, they, and they started bringing people back together again. Right. So um, you know there will be, I guess there's experimentation, right? Which is which is good. Let's you know let's let's figure out what works, and it's not necessarily a one size fits all for every organisation. Certainly will depend on on the types of roles, how much. Uh, collaboration is there how much, how important is it to be able to do that sort of stuff in person mm. um, but the, it's very attractive in a city like Auckland as you say not to have to deal with traffic so yeah. you know we have a level of that that that, that continues certainly you know probably a, 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 across a you know a, a fairly large percentage of um, of clients and you know in some cases it, it might be you know, people are down to say four days a week in the office or three days a week but they've got you know one or two at home and other times it might be at the other extreme so mm. oh well good to good to hear how that's um how that's playing out at voyager and yeah and you, on the investment front that that's kind of pushed some push some buttons for you because you know, i think it's it is really important that that we all keep sort of looking at looking ahead and seeing how uh you know technology changes things and you know, that's certainly something that's been enabled by technology. Now, we were chatting before we started recording around um, cybersecurity, and there, there are a few different aspects that we uh, we delved into. But uh, one of them was the distributed denial of service attack uh, that hit the New Zealand Stock Exchange last year, the, the NZX. 
Um, and you mentioned you kind of came under a, attack at, at Voyager um, at that time as as well. Can you run us through that? What what that was like? Because it's uh, not a nice position to have somebody basically trying to wipe you off the face of the the internet for whether it's a short period of time or, or a long period. It's uh, um, obviously the longer it is, you know, the more painful and, and potentially more expensive it becomes. Yeah. So we we didn't want to say too much at the time or, or really anything. The NZX came under um, just to revisit that, you know, a number of attacks and got taken down multiple times and and struggled. Um, Voyager may have been the second largest um, attack vector for whatever reason. I don't know. There could have been other companies that didn't kind of say things, but for whatever reason, we got chosen as a as a company that was the appropriate size where they could. Um, you know, throw a large attack at us. Um, but, I mean, for comparison, we're about 140th the size of Spark. So Spark's sort of 40% of the New Zealand internet, Voyager's 1% of the New Zealand internet. And with the size of attacks that we were seeing, or New Zealand was seeing, the NZX attacks were actually um, causing Spark problems. So um, for for a company like Voyager that's 40 times smaller than the big guy, and the big guy's having problems, you know, when one of their customers getting attacked, the, um, the scale was huge. So um, Voyager's external kind of internet links across to the trans-Tasman and international and that kind of thing total about 40 gigabits of capacity um, and uh, for indication yeah the attacks that were, were coming against us were up to 10 times that or half a half a terabit so 500 gigabits of capacity Wow! and so essentially um, you know there was nothing um, wrong with our system there was nothing that was kind of under provision it's just that you know when you're used to dealing with uh, you know <laughs> one tenth as much traffic and then you have to handle a whole lot and um, you know they, they used a number of attacks so there was um DNS amplification attacks where they query your DNS servers and force your DNS servers to go and you know go elsewhere and do a whole lot of work. Um, there was um, packet fragmentation. There was a whole you know raft of attacks, um, and Voyager had been getting about twenty denial of service attacks a month previously between one and ten gigabits. But we could essentially see that traffic coming in and then throw it away. But um, when your pipes are completely overwhelmed, it gets difficult now. As a service provider, there are some things that you can do. So there's a thing called real-time uh, black holing, RTBH, and what happens is that if, a, if an attacker attacks a certain IP address on the internet, you can black hole that IP address. You can tell the rest of the internet to say this IP address doesn't exist, and then it disappears from all the, the major routing tables. Yep. Um, but, of course, that takes things down. So um, we were kind of playing whack-a-mole where, say, for example, they might attack our name servers, and then if our name servers aren't working, then the domain names on first domain can't be locked up so then you have to move first domain's name servers and things but um, we did a lot of learning um, and um, subsequently put in uh, at great expense a lot of different layers of attack so we've written custom software that does RTBH um, black holing we also worked out how to black hole an IP address on the global internet but not in New Zealand so that um, for example if our voice platform got attacked we could um, have it unreachable from overseas which has almost no impact because we don't really have any overseas customers unlike Skype but then instead of being taken down from our voice platform domestically we could keep that going um but it's worth bearing in mind we were sort of seeing a whole lot of things that you know you hadn't seen and the whole time we were getting uh you know ransom demands from uh 
the Fancy Bear group, or I mean, it may not have been the Fancy Bear is kind of a well-known Russian attack group, but it's possible there was just some you know kid in T you know Tauranga or something <laughs> that was doing it and then saying, oh, it's Fancy Bear because it's a good name to you know to, to blame you. it on and yeah, scare yeah. you, yeah. Um, you know, because uh, these botnets and things internationally can be hired by virtually anyone, but it would have been costing them a certain amount of money to launch these attacks. These attacks cost the attackers money because effectively what they have to do is they have to pay for tens of thousands of compromised machines to throw traffic at you but um, yeah, these fancy bear attacks were, were orders of magnitude larger than New Zealand's ever kind of dealt with and um, yeah I mean we, we got almost completely taken down for nearly a day um, and then uh, we started putting all of our services on um, you know things like Cloudflare which is um, you know global uh, CDNs um, and you know a bunch of things so we've we've got you know half a dozen layers of protection in um, that we have to pay for all the time just in case this happens again so we're we're pretty well protected but um, we didn't want to make any announcement so we were in a very precarious position because um, when when attackers see that they're hurting you then they just push harder because then they think that you'll pay the ransom and we're seeing an absolute explosion of these kind of attacks because now that you can be paid in Bitcoin anonymously um, it's kind of untraceable where the payment goes whereas previously if, if, a, if a cyber attacker had wanted to attack you and get some money they would have said okay give us your credit card but then that can be traced through the world's global payment systems but now that Bitcoin sort of uh, exists as a you know independent you know non-traceable um, thing it's possible for a cyber attacker to be very you know covered up and and um, you know get money that can't be uh, essentially traced by the authorities and so yeah, that's, that's, that's meaning that's that this change, kind of, that's, yeah that's yeah. meaning that um, you know things like this are, are massively on the rise and um, you know there's all sorts of things going on that are you know frankly a little bit scary but um, you know we've, we, we, we can deal with that type of, type of attack now and um, you know we're yeah. confident that we got through it so I'm comfortable enough to kind of speak about it a little yeah. bit for the yeah. first time so you, you've, got a, you've got a scoop on the story but yeah, right. we didn't want to say anything at the time. Yeah no very very wise and um, yeah look you're, you're absolutely right with um, you know with cryptocurrencies and, and, and Bitcoin that has completely changed the game you know I guess over the last decade but we've just seen it rising and it's uh, you know it's very very clear that these things aren't aren't going to stop uh, and you know every organization has you know some exposure but as an internet provider your exposure quite you know quite different to others and you know it sounds like you've you know you've spent a lot of money a lot of time uh, you know figuring out what are the what are the things that you've had to uh, adjust so that you you're in a you know even more resilient um, you yeah, know, position. Yeah, I mean, essentially, than essentially, we have to be able to cope with you know ten to twenty times as much traffic as we normally carry on any particular day, uh, and be able to throw that traffic away if it's spurious. Um, but that costs money to have all of that infrastructure. So I'm I'm kind of paying to have an internet company that's got twenty times the capability um, that's most of the time not not needed. And previously, the the dollars and cents just didn't make up make make sense for that but we need the protection because we can't have our customers complaining so we're living in that new world yep, yeah it's just one of the new overheads for doing business isn't it yeah and and i think this this is one of the challenges that i see we have in new zealand is that organizations are are not used to spending money on cyber security and so you know whether it's a big organization or a small organization 
it usually takes some sort of incident before the money starts getting spent, before the sort of tap gets turned. Obviously, in your case, you were already spending money on these sorts of things, and that's just mm. you know caused you to, to to turn the tap even even more, which puts you know pain on on other parts of the business. But you know, I often liken it to to where we were twenty, thirty years ago, and you know, people would have data on computers and just sort of assume it was all okay. And someone would be saying, "Hey, you know, you need to back that up at some point," or maybe they didn't even hear that message. But usually, when those things change was when an organisation or an individual lost data. Oh, my card drive crashed and I lost all my photos or I lost my thesis I've been working, you know, for three years on or, you know, all of these stories were, you know, they were just so so common back then. And then, you know, once, once you either, you know, heard someone's story really close to you or more often than not it was, you know, you directly or your organisation directly, then we started seeing, you know, like formal backup processes, formal checks, business continuity processes of, you know, actually testing what happens, you know, if we try and rebuild, you know, some infrastructure because it's it's been hit and or it's, you know, it's failed in some way. Um, and that's really where we have to be now in a cyber security perspective, isn't it? You know, our organisations need to really plan and think through, you know, what could happen if they're a little business. Mm. Then, you know, obviously that has to be kept in balance to a degree, which makes it, you know, makes it harder on small businesses. But the bigger a, a business is, the, um, you know, the bigger the, the impact can be. So. Yes, a denial of service attack is a little bit of a sort of special case because uh, it doesn't necessarily imply any form of negligence on the um, behalf of the or the, the side of the victim. So we hadn't True. done anything wrong or, or no, not at all. you know, been negligent. You know, the, you know, you can obviously have things like a, a breach where maybe someone, you know, steals passwords from your website and that can be caused by, um, you know, your IT people doing a bad job and leaving a loophole open or something like that. Um, but this is just a situation where the internet starts throwing gargantuan amounts of traffic at you and, and overwhelms things that are properly configured. Um, so Yeah, it's something um, you have to plan for to to a degree which you were already doing right as you said yep. you were already being hit with this stuff and then it becomes well you it's know not how, on the scale. How, how much do you turn the tap on in terms of what you invest and 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 the level of uh, and the level of protection and uh, I mean just in the last few days we've heard more details about um, a, a big um, hit on Ubiquity which is you know a very well known right. um, you know provider of ne- network equipment and um, you know they've they've had some some dramas uh, which which now. You know, having sort of a really a really big compromise that it's, it sounds like they have had, plus and you know the material that's been released you know online by supposedly by an insider, and you you know you can't verify these things, but that plus the fact that going back about six years that uh, they got hit with a invoice scam and and paid forty plus million US dollars in the wrong direction doesn't make them look very uh, you know very dedicated to cyber security but you know on the flip side there's the aspect that no organisation you know regardless of what you spend is going to be 100% safe right so you know it's it's a constant you know constant manoeuvring to you know try and get the right balance and um, organisations will will continue to be hit and uh, it's uh, it's a matter of trying to trying to minimise it and as you've done in this case which is just be quick on your feet and uh, be as smart as you can because um, you know clearly, clearly you did a pretty good job there from uh, um, yeah I, from think most our, I think our guys so, reacted really well yeah. I mean um, denial of service attacks are, are on the increase and um, you know as us and NZX um, you know would attest and you know we kind of 
made a bunch of changes and now now we can survive just about anything that you know is thrown at us yeah um touch wood but um the other sort of attack that's really becoming common um, because there's, there's money in it is these encryption attacks where um, an attacker will, you know, send an email to someone inside the organisation and then that, you know, goes through the organisation servers and encrypts all of your files and then you have to pay to, um, you know, get those unencrypted. My understanding, pay the ransom. This, this is anecdotally that there's more than 10 organisations that have paid a million dollar ransom in New Zealand alone in the last year. So this is actually a huge problem. And of course, that's also being enabled by the anonymity of, of being able to be paid in Bitcoin. Um, but of course, as soon as you um, you know pay a, a Bitcoin ransom, whether it's for a DDoS attack or a, uh, an encryption attack, then there's no guarantee that they'll actually give you the code or stop attacking you because then they say, oh, well, these, these dummies have, have paid, so then they might just attack you from a different name. So I was very um, you know vehement about not paying and just doing what we could to survive um, and you know and we did a good job and the other thing of course is it costs them money so if you pay them that then gives them money to keep on going with the attack against other people um, so you kind of want to starve the fire out you don't want to be giving them cash so that then they can launch more attacks because yeah, the attacks yeah, cost money totally but um, yeah but there had, is that uh, temptation right in, in, in some cases uh, you know organisations their, their hand has been forced to a degree but I understand that um, there's some real risk to doing that because you don't necessarily know who you're paying and of course New Zealand actually there are certain countries where there are you know sanctions and so let's say you're you know sending money and it turns up in North Korea well you could be you know that sort of thing you could be fined or jailed or whatever depending on you know which which jurisdiction you sort of come under because uh, New Zealanders aren't allowed to you know do business across some of the, some of these borders right? Yes it's, it's very complicated and you mentioned briefly um, there was some suspicion on you know one of the these hacking incidents of an inside job so um, this is quite spine chilling, but I'm aware of one hacking organisation that's actually offered a uh, a bounty to you know any employee that gives them information that allows them to access um, you know company information and then make money. And they actually, you know, this hacking organisation has offered to pay 75 percent of whatever they get. So uh, essentially, the hacking organisation is saying, look, if you can, if you if you're an employee at a big company like IBM or something, if you can give us a password or access to a server or something that helps us ransom that company will keep your um, identity anonymous no one needs to know about you and if we end up making money from that attack we'll pay you 75% of the proceeds in Bitcoin um, because you've Bitcoin made it account. you've made it easy for us to do now that is really spine chilling that should send shivers up you know any uh, you know kind of IT managers or CEOs uh, spine so when I read about that I was you know very horrified because um, you know but of course the thing is is that there's no guarantee guarantee that those organizations will be right and proper and then pay the employee there's no no um no incentive for them to do that so probably what happens a lot of the time is an employee then you know maybe a pissed off employee gives them access and then they just keep all the money anyway despite the promises they've made but uh it, it is the new world with uh you know bitcoin and and um all these internet connected devices and different vectors and all kinds of things that it, it is becoming <laughs> a crazy world you know 
Yeah, and then you add in the sort of deep fakes and the, you know, the ability for someone to call up and verify something, you know, with you if one of your team called you up CB and uh, um, or or you you or a virtual CB called uh, you know one of your uh, one of your team members in your finance department and had a sort of a you know what sounded like you on the phone under some pressure to get some some uh, bill paid. Um, you know, you've got to have really good processes internally for you know how you deal with those scenarios and be, you know, actually have your team members prepared that someone could call up that sounds exactly like you. Um, there could be an email that looks as though it's from you. Yes, I'm sure I'm sure a number of your listeners would have seen the Google demonstration where, you know, Google Assistant pretended to be a person, rung a hairdressing salon and then made an appointment um, or the video deepfake of Obama, you know, saying, you know, saying anything. Um, so I haven't heard of anything, um, I'm not a security expert, but I haven't heard of anything in the wild where, um, you know, deep deepfake type stuff or voice-based neural nets have been used to, you know, scam people out of money. But I, I have heard, um, you know, some of the social engineering attacks are, are getting quite sophisticated. And I was aware of a, a sort of an attack recently where, um, you know, a supplier changed their bank account validly, sent out an email um, that their bank account had changed, and then an attacker uh, obviously had got that. So then rung up the company and said, "Oh, I'm just following up. Um, just you know, did you get that email that we changed our bank account? Just letting you know the bank account on that email is actually wrong. Um, we'd made a complete error, but you know that kind of thing." And then of course the the person said, "Well, I'm a little bit suspicious about this." Rings the company back, said, "Did you change your bank account? Yes, yes, we changed our bank account." So there was kind of this they'd got in the middle of the communication and made it seem like um, you know everything was tickety-boo and then managed to insert uh, through social engineering a fake account and then got a whole heap of money so um, yeah uh, yeah Philip Whitmore at uh, PwC is a good good uh, guy to talk to over lunch about all of that sort of stuff yeah yeah we do have, <laughs> we must get him back on the podcast again it's uh, he's, he was on uh, I think last last year so uh, um, yeah he's always got interesting uh, interesting insights and and, and perspectives um, from uh, the team at PwC, and you know they have quite a large cybersecurity uh, practice there. So yeah, they, they see lots of uh, lots of interesting things. Um, one of the things I've, I've I get from time to time with the New Zealand podcast is we get different brands sending us equipment to uh, to look at. Um, I've recently been looking at a product Vodafone are calling um, their super, uh, calling Vodafone Super Wi-Fi, and also uh, or- Orcon, um, and I think we've probably talked about this a little while back. But uh, Orcon have uh, a partnership with um, with Google, whereby um, they offer customers the um, the Nest Wi-Fi um, product, which has has been uh, been interesting. So I got to have a chance to have a bit of a call with um, with one of the Google uh, team who was involved in that Nest product, and the the question uh, one of the well, one of the questions I had because the um, the Nest Wi-Fi product doesn't run the latest Wi-Fi six, and so I was, right. you know, sort of saying, "Well, why are you, you know, come on, Google, you know, sort your act out. You, you know, you're launching this product into the New Zealand market nearly a year after you launched it in the in the US um, through that Orcon partnership." But it was interesting, sort of delving into it and and getting a bit of an explanation of sort of the maturity of it and the tuning and the different things they had done and worked to sort of prioritise sort of our um, you know video calling type traffic over and above, say, you know, downloads and, 
and things in the in the background. And got to say, using um, using both Google Wi-Fi and and now the sort of the that's uh, rebranded under the Nest name um, with their latest iteration, the the Nest um, the new Nest Wi-Fi product. Um, it's pretty good stuff around the house, and um, but and I'll, I'm keen to sort of you know hear you know how you address this at Voyager, but we seem to have this challenge, and I don't know how well uh, Chorus themselves have actually been addressing it because they they're very good at encouraging people to go to uh, to fibre. And look, I wholeheartedly support that. The most reliable internet connection you can get into your into your home, and the fastest is you know that that right sort of balance in terms of um, you know performance and reliability um, is likely to be a, a, a permanent fiber optic connection. But of course, there's a bit more to the puzzle than that because you can get that into your home, and then you know so often I hear from people saying, "Well, oh, I've got fiber, but you know it's." really rubbish and um, and it's that last uh, last piece and what we always used to say back in, in in years gone by was look get your house wired up and and I still recommend it you know as much as possible to the, to this day you know run run cabling around your house to sort of you know your key points to again get the most reliability and consistency and certainly within you know business premises most businesses will 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 do that as well so that they've got that full consistent gig Gigabit speed, you know, right to every desktop. Uh, but you know, very much so in, in our home environments, it's down to it's down to Wi-Fi, and you've got this, you know, little router, which may be really good when you're standing within a you know a few meters of it, depending on what walls are around it and what the layout is. Or, you know, if you've got a uh, four-story mansion with basements and a you know and and whatnot and a big property, then that uh, that device isn't going to be enough. So it's just been interesting to see um, you know what Orcon have done with partnering with the, the Nest product there to try and you know spread that signal out reasonably well um, trying that and then the other product um, is the Vodafone Super Wi-Fi one which is a, a TP link product with an extra sleeve on it um, and possibly there's um, you know there's some other aspects that they've done there with that product to uh, to customize it locally the difference other than the brand and whatever other bits and pieces um, was that the Vodafone product was Wi-Fi 6 so I was kind of quite curious to you know to get that feel because you know Wi-Fi 6 has been slowly coming into the market, um, but mostly uh, in routers, and it's sort of taken a while for it to get to um, you know the mesh Wi-Fi devices that are that are now very very popular. Um, and and you know as I mentioned, the um, the Google slash Nest product um, you know isn't Wi-Fi six yet. So um, yeah, it's interesting te- testing it out. Did a, did a bunch of bunch of tests and. What I found was actually in a lot of cases the performance you would get would be pretty much the same, um, you know, comparing those two. But there were times when the Wi-Fi 6 product would would definitely be faster. Um, but you generally had to be quite close to it to be getting the sort of, you know, I've got a, the, the close to gigabit, um, you know, ultra-fast broadband um, service at home. And, yeah, on Wi-Fi I very rarely, uh, you know, see anywhere near that sort of level. But the the highest that I got, you know, a bit over five hundred megabits per second, sort of download, and 
maybe uh, you know 400 odd sort of upload speeds was over um, that Wi-Fi 6 product. And of course, there's a lot of other products in the market that are going to use similar chipsets and so on. Um, but yeah, interesting just to sort of you know try that out because I think there's there's probably a general feeling you always want to go to the latest and greatest. And of course, it also depends on what's the device that you're connecting to. It does that actually support Wi-Fi 6? Which, yep, if you've got you know newer sort of laptop, you've got a reasonable chance of that newer sort of phone. Uh, I think there'd be very few of us that um, could work out how they could use a 500 megabits per second um, download on their on their phone at the moment on an everyday basis. But you know, on your laptop, if you're syncing lots of files and you know to and from the cloud, then um, you want you want it to be as close to a wide connection as possible. If you don't have a uh, you know Ethernet jack to hook into, or you're you know sitting on your sofa doing a bit of work, right? Yeah, yeah. I um, I'm a bit of an avid uh, hobbyist photographer, and I uh, have an A7, a Sony A7R4, which shoots 64 megapixel RAWs. So each file is about 100 megabytes. So when I go out shooting birds, or you know whatever, I might shoot a thousand images yep. um, in a day, and then I've got you know a huge oh amount of data. And, it's going to um, take a while to, to, a, to well, get to the cloud. It's interesting actually because when I'm on my home gigabit connection, it's often you know it'll be a few minutes, and then I'll notice that Dropbox says it's you know. Ticked, it's, all it's all it's all synced, so Done. it's it's pretty amazing. But um, yeah, I've been through four uh, houses in the last few years, and it's it's a little bit embarrassing and hilarious because I've had Wi-Fi issues in all of them, <laughs> and I'm kind of you know I'm a CEO of an internet provider, but I'm not a heavily heavily technical person at the level of our engineering team but I'm kind of proud enough and I know enough to be dangerous and I like to configure my own things so um, my house four years ago and it is good that you know mesh Wi-Fi is getting more intelligent but a lot of the different products have kind of different features and different way they work so um, at Voyager we're sort of trying to evaluate you know what would be best going forward but um, there's there's so many kind of things but I in my um, house of say four years ago it was a it was a very large ego trip house which I've sold and don't own anymore but it had nine <laughs> bedrooms and three living rooms and two levels and this kind of thing um, and luckily it was relatively new so it had Ethernet everywhere and so um, I just this, decided this is the one that been featured on yes, uh, very the, TV the New shows New Zealand's top so model house and yep. MasterChef house and that kind of thing so yeah pretty well yep. known and known house in Milford but yeah nice um, place I um, yeah I decided to run very very high quality access points and um, then I just kind of configured them all up with the same SSID or you know hotspot name basically and um, you know it always always kind of bugged me because I had these weird Wi-Fi issues and then it took me a year to work out that what was was happening is because I had different access points that had the same access point name but they might have been on different channels when I was sitting exactly in the middle of them um, you know my phone might be sort of hopping between one or the other or not know, not, not know what channel to be on um, and kind of get confused so I had you know good Wi-Fi everywhere except when I was in my you know lying in my bed with my phone and it would drive me nuts because my my phone would seem to sort of drop on the Wi-Fi drop off the Wi-Fi but I was just exactly between you know two hotspots and that's that was a problem of kind of uh, about four years ago. The mesh technology wasn't as good for home networking. Obviously, if I'd if I'd gone and put in sort of carrier grade campus Wi-Fi, then that technology exists. But the the mesh um, technology that you know has been on campuses has kind of been moved moved to a home. 
uh, kind of environment. And um, then on my next house, I decided, okay, I'm not going to have this conflict problem. I've worked out what's going on. So I basically did the same sort of thing, ran Ethernet everywhere, and ended up having different hotspots with just different names and then having to connect to them. But then, of course, if I had a friend over, I'd be like, okay, here's the password for this one, here's the password for this one, and kept everything on separate SSIDs, kept the channels separate, um, and did a bit of engineering. But then what would happen is if I'd walk around the house, one hotspot would kind of get faint and then my phone would kind of uh, lose that one and then it would have to reconnect to another one. So, um, yeah, these these new hotspot products do seem to, uh, or mesh Wi-Fi products seem to be good in that, you know, some of them can obviously, you can have a, you can have one of the access points doesn't even need to be uh, connected to a wired connection and it can have a, you know, Wi-Fi backhaul and then it can use the same SSID. But then oftentimes you run into problems where, you know, maybe um, legacy equipment like, say, a Philips Hue or whatever is only wanting to use, you know, the, the first wireless standard and then, you know, doesn't want to use, you know, five or n or you know whatever and then doesn't like connecting to the mesh so you have to have that backwards um, compatibility yeah, don't yeah. You? some of yeah. I've, i think on my home network at the moment i've got uh 50 or 60 ip devices when i do a port scan because i've got cameras and things and so one of the mesh products that i was evaluating um nothing none of my old stuff would connect to it so then that's a problem so um yeah, i'm a ceo of an internet service provider and and getting really really good wi-fi that works everywhere in a, in a house of a reasonable size seems to still be a challenge it, yeah, it's yeah. it's a really interesting um, factor, isn't it? Because you know, you know I think a, a lot of people just assume this stuff is really easy, should be really easy, um, but it's yeah. There's off there's often you know a fair bit of complexity to actually actually getting it right. And um, you know, one of the brands that we used to have a you know a lot of trust in for those sort of home environments and for um, you know the the sort of smaller to medium enterprises. Um, you know, was ubiquity, and you know, I think with with what's happened to them recently, there's going to be uh, yeah, people going to be maybe a little bit a little bit more cautious. That was just um, that was just a data hack, though, wasn't it? A data breach. Um, well, I mean, I guess they've had a couple of issues. They've in that case, you know, I think somebody was able to get access to a whole lot of their cloud servers because they got passwords into their yeah, Amazon Web Services sort of environment, and were able to yeah um, pull pull down a lot of stuff. But they've they've also sort of had those issues with access to uh, well with how would you put it De- delivering uh, firmware to their customers that's uh, that's not always very stable so it's right. it's kind of okay. you know, it's kind of one of those things where you know as a brand and I'm, you know I'm sure we have lots of listeners that that really you know love the brand and it is a very very popular um, product but it's I guess it sort of becomes another chink chink in their armor as it as it were you know you get more. More little bits and pieces, and uh, eventually you get the sort of you know straw that broke the camel's back, as it as it were. Yeah, um, I mean, and it's I think just it does a, dent, dent confidence at least to, at least to a to a degree. I'm not, and I'm not saying they you know, the, the brand's about to disappear or anything, but I imagine there'll be you know some some customers who are you know just just feeling a little bit less confident in them. Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, security of data, I think there's a bit of an exhaustion. I know definitely for me, you know, I, I read um, uh, that that book by one of the um, early investors on, on Facebook called Zucked, you know, and, and this is by a guy that was a, you know, a Facebook fan and then he sort of talks about how bad some of their data policies are and Cambridge Analytica and yep. just basically sharing everyone's data with any, any advertiser who wants it because whatever you can do to, you know, make money and, and you know, Mark Zuckerberg's kind of philosophy was, you know, open access open platform you know kind of share everything if you know users are idiots if they gave us anything that they didn't want you know 
out there kind of thing and there's a lot of stuff in that book that's like very eye-opening but then of course you've had you know LinkedIn hack you've had the um, you know large uh, you know credit companies in the US you've had all these kind of things so it seems like every few days or week is some massive you know cloud service that you use that says oh yeah sorry all of our usernames and passwords and credit cards have been stolen and yeah, so now that's yeah. on the internet and so you know a company like Ubiquity you kind of shrug and say okay delete the email who cares whatever thanks for notifying me but you know it's the same as every other you know company so it's it's a real problem yeah yeah, yeah. it is and look it's, it's it's probably not about to stop and the impact of these things you know in some ways is less than what it was because it used to be with those breaches people were getting hold of passwords and you know, a lot of folks weren't using password managers and so they were using the same password across you know multiple tools which was um, you know how Trump's Twitter account got um, you know got hacked on on one occasion because you know he was he was using the uh, you were fired had been his uh, his password on LinkedIn so that was exposed through the, the LinkedIn Jeez, you'd think um, that'd, be, that'd be just a brute force attack people would be trying that on Twitter wouldn't they? yeah well and they got but they got in you know they got into his account that way and um, they either they had to do a couple of other tricks because you know the, there wasn't full multi-factor or there wasn't multi-factor on um, the on the Twitter platform at that stage even though it was a verified account but um, they were getting sort of bounced when they tried to log into the account because they were sort of expecting like a, a standard or a sort of natural login um, you know was going to be from where he was based you know New York or Washington DC whatever it was at the time and from I think it was on a really old um, Samsung like uh, Galaxy S3 or something rather yeah. uh, this was just prior to you know the election where he got elected and so they managed to sort of you know fake that that side of it or set up a VPN and and you know, fake that it was that phone connecting in, and then um, and then they were through, and they were into uh, into his account. Um, but they were good guys, and they were you know their their goal was not to uh, you know ca- cause any harm. Yeah, and if they um, tweeted out like launch global thermonuclear war or something <laughs> like, <laughs> as war games. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's a, it's a shocking state of affairs. Really interesting to ca- catch up, CB. Um, we should should do this a bit more more often. Yeah, thanks um, for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thank and and thanks for sort of sharing about the you know the DDoS attacks. I think you know that that stuff is is really interesting, and I know that we have to keep you know educating ourselves so that we keep New Zealand you know safe and in different areas. We need to just be be aware of these things going on. That you know, for instance. I, you know, I don't think the distributed denial of service attacks have probably had as much thought from you know anybody within the the, the sector um, until this this happened. I mean, obviously, you know, your team had already been dealing with the, these sorts of things on a regular basis, but not at that scale. Uh, you know, clearly the NZX weren't. Um, you know, quite prepared for the scale of what you know of what hit them, and from the the perspective of you know as a country, you know the importance of of a stock exchange that you can uh, you know you can rely on, you know, is, is pretty important, right? So you know, from from their perspective, I'm sure their viewpoint on these things has has changed, and so yeah, the more um, we hear you know a little bit of the sort of insides and and insights, then uh, then we we can better prepare ourselves as a country, and I'd far prefer that you know the money that New Zealand generates on the on the global 
global stage that we can spend it on ourselves and, and use it here as much as possible to grow our economy rather than you know finding out people are having to pay uh, ransoms and bribes and things like that to cyber criminals in other parts of the world so yeah, uh, yeah I really helpful I don't, I don't think NZX did anything negligent at all um, you know but it, it took them a couple of weeks to get on top of the issues and so um, yeah, we're very proud of our guys that we really only had sort of one day of, of heavy um, things and we were working you know literally you know every tech person in the company was doing a 24 hour shift and we, we by and large had mitigated a lot of the stuff um, but there was a huge amount of learning of, of um, you know things that we just hadn't implemented or um, cloud services or CDNs and, and a lot of that's like a very technical um, some of it even over my head but if there are any listeners that have a DDoS attack in future I'm happy for them to you know just give me a contact in the first instance and um, you know Voyager is happy to help out anyone you know not, not for a charge but if there's a if there's a New Zealand organisation that's really struggling that gets DDoSed in the future and someone on the on the show hears, then I'm happy for our guys to share our kind of knowledge um, because, you know, we just need to help each other out. So it's, it's awesome. not that's an really advertisement for a paid Voyager security <laughs> service. <laughs> yeah. That's very, very generous, Simi. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and, yeah, we'll, we'll look, look forward to sort of, you know, following, uh, um, you know, following progress and, uh, and seeing what else happens. We haven't had a chance to sort of delve in, you know, too much around... Uh, you know, you talked about your voice over IP um, services, and you know, I know that uh, one of your acquisitions was um, Conversant a few years ago, and you've you know now gone from three uh, voice platforms down to down to one, which is is, is pretty interesting. But yeah, there's um, I guess it's it's time to, it's time to wrap up, so we don't hold you up for too long. Okay, um, yeah, thanks again for yeah, having me on. Great. Yeah. Cheers. All right, well, thanks everyone for listening in to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, we look forward to catching you uh, on the next episode. You can, of course find us online at nztechpodcast.com um, you can follow me Paul Spain across uh, any of the social media channels uh, such as LinkedIn where we do a lot of videos and also uh, we're on uh, YouTube and Facebook so if you want to catch some of our videos that um, you know we, we do every uh, couple of weeks or so uh, then definitely follow on those channels and if you are a tech early adopter which is, is definitely um, you know I, I guess a, a reasonable percentage of our listeners uh, and you're using Club Clubhouse, um, then you can track me down uh, on Clubhouse. Um, Paul Spain is is my handle, um, and the other social audio platform um, that that I'm on uh, is Twitter Spaces at the moment because those are kind of the two that exist in in the real world and are you know somewhat uh, easy to uh, to participate in. I'm at Paul Spain on on Twitter as well if you want to uh, connect in those places. And so I'm CB Woodhouse from Voyager. In case you didn't catch that, and uh, my first name is spelled S E E B. And that's my Twitter, Instagram, everything. So S-E-E-B-Y will find me on any platform. Awesome. And in terms of getting hold of the company? Uh, Voyager NZ is our Instagram and and Twitter. Excellent. Oh, that's good. All right. Thank Thank you, you, CB. Cheers. A special thank you to our partners who make the New Zealand Tech Podcast possible and are proud supporters of the tech and innovation ecosystems here in New Zealand. They are Umbrella Connect, Vocus, Vodafone, Spark, HP and Gorilla Technology. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.